You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Now, in the spirit of getting ahead of myself, just like I did for ushering in the Christmas season, uh, you may think that I'm getting ahead of myself this morning. Because the text today is the text that actually happens right after the very first Christmas. So we hadn't even gotten to Christmas yet, and we're already looking at a text that happens right after the very first Christmas. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and many of you are very familiar with Luke chapter 2. My grandmother had me memorize verses 1 through 14 in the King James language, so I only know the Christmas story as King James would tell us. Uh, But early in Luke 2, Jesus is born. Then the shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. We see that about the middle of the chapter or early on in the chapter. And then in verse 22, and this happens after his birth, we see Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And where we're starting today is verse 25. It's at that dedication when he's taking, when they're taking him to the temple. So this prequel, and that's what I'm calling this sermon this morning, it's kind of like a prequel to our Christmas series, really may feel like an epilogue, right? (laughs) Because it happens right after the Christmas story. But in a sense, I think we're going to find that this is really just setting the stage for the Christmas season. So let's look, Luke 2, 25 through 38. uh, And let me pray one more time for us as we dive in. Father, I just pray that as Andy just prayed for me privately in the back, that you would free me up just to let your word speak this morning. And I pray, Lord, that your word would penetrate all of our hearts, myself at the front of the line. And I pray, Lord, that as we uh, anticipate the coming of Christmas, that we will see that you are always present and always with us even when it may seem like you're not. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, verse 25. If you have a bulletin, we'll be taking some notes. If you don't have a bulletin, you can access one online at kingscross.org. The text will probably be on the screen. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. 
She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So many consider this passage at the end of the Christmas story, but really I believe it gives us context for what's the beginning. We just completed an 11-week series in the book of Nehemiah, which holds the last historic events in the Old Testament. Even though Nehemiah is like right in the middle of the Old Testament, it's the last historic events of the Old Testament. So Jerusalem, just in summary, had been conquered by Babylon. A bunch of the citizens were exiled, and Jerusalem fell into ruin. Then Persia conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. The temple that was then restored uh, under the leadership of Ezra and then later, the walls of the city were repaired under the leadership of Nehemiah, and this allowed people to be safely restored to their homes. So both the law and the priesthood had been restored through these events that happened in Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Jews had given up their worship of idols. So some good stuff had happened. But Jewish people, we saw some of this last week in Chip's sermon, were mistreating their wives. They were marrying pagans. They were not tithing. The priests were neglecting the temple, and they weren't teaching the ways of God. So in Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, and so I have my Bible open to Malachi. This is the last two verses of the Old Testament, and this is what Malachi says. And he was a contemporary of Nehemiah, so he was speaking during these events. This is the last two verses of the Old Testament. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I, God, come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So God gives this warning in the last two verses of the Old Testament. And then you see, in my Bible as it is, you've got one page right here, and then the New Testament starts. And this one page represents 400 years. Elijah ends up being John the Baptist, who was born in Luke 1, and is a forerunner to Jesus' ministry. But between Malachi's warning and John the Baptist's coming were 400 years of silence, where as far as we can tell... God did not officially speak. There were no official prophets. There were no books of the Bible written. Israel and the world went 400 years without formally hearing any updates from the Lord. So we fast forward to 400 years after the wall was built, and we get to Luke 2. And in the very temple that had been restored by Nehemiah, we find Simeon and Anna who may have been close to, I don't know, maybe 100 years old each. And we only see the end of their lives where they meet one-month-old baby Jesus. But what their lives represented, and I think this is where we got to really just focus on just for a few minutes and just feel this, is that even though this passage may be at the end of the Christmas story, 
and we see the event that they had spent their entire lives praying for and looking for and hoping for, as we just had the Advent candle of hope, that really what they represent was almost a quarter of the 400 years of silence, their lives. Maybe, you know, we can't tell. We see 84, but some historians say because of the way it works and being a widow in 84 years, maybe she was close to 100. It seems like Simeon was toward the end of his life. So just as a flyover summary, and we're going to get into what it looks like to live out of 400 years of silence, but just to kind of give us some context, I want to do a flyover of what maybe those 400 years look like. I mean, I was just talking to Coach Reedy out in the lobby, and we were talking about these 400 years, and I said, you know, a lot of, especially when I was a kid and even as an adult, because I love Christmas, and it's like Christmas just seems always, as soon as January hits, Christmas is a long ways away. Well, 12 months from the previous Christmas is a lot shorter than 400 years, so let's get a flyover of what happened over these 400 years. So in the 4th century B.C., we see this. That This is the 300s, so this is how it works with centuries and the years. So during the 4th century B.C., which is the year 300s, Israel fell to the Greek emperor. Many of you recognize this guy, Alexander the Great. Then Israel fell to the Egyptians. I mean, already we can see out of the gate that the 400 years of silence seems to be filled with a lot of violence. So Israel adopted the Greek language because of this, their influence of the Greeks in their lives, and then even moving to Egypt. When they actually moved to the Egypt, they had adopted the Greek language. They adopted a Greek culture. And so they had some time in Egypt to where this is actually when scholars translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. So many of you that study your Bible have probably heard of the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so a lot of the quotes that we see in the New Testament are actually quoted from the Septuagint. This happened during the 300s when they were in Egypt. Then you get to the 3rd century BC, which is the 200s. For the most part, uh, Jewish law and the priesthood remained intact. Uh, Things seemed to be going okay. Everything seemed to be rocking along until you get to the end of the century, and then Syria captures Israel. And so you transition into the 2nd century, which is the year 100s. The king of Syria ends up persecuting Jews, ended up being a really bad time for the Jews. They got rid of the priesthood. Uh, They desecrated the temple's holy of holies. A guy came in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus in the holy of holies where only the high priest once a year was supposed to go in. So this is like an awful thing for the Jews. Then a guy from the priestly line of Aaron. And so this is where the priesthood was to originate or did originate in the Old Testament. So a guy from the priestly line of Aaron steps up. His name is Judas Maccabeus. You may have heard of the Maccabees. And he leads, leads an uprising that recaptured Jerusalem from Syria, and they end up purifying the temple. So this is a really good thing. And this rededication of the temple is where we get the holiday Hanukkah. So that's where Hanukkah comes from. Some Christians ask, should we celebrate Hanukkah or not? Well, it's actually a really good event that happened during Israel's history. And so then from that, so some good things were happening. We transitioned to the first century, which is, I guess these are the zeros, like zero to 100 uh, BC. Rome gained control of Israel. 
And so this is where Roman comes in. I mean, so we've already been setting the stage during these first 300 years for really needing a deliverer, for really needing someone to rescue the nation, to rescue the people. And this is really setting the stage, what we see in these last 100 years. Rome gains control of Israel. Caesar installs a descendant of Esau. So this is not the good line that needs to come from the kings of Israel, but he installs as a, uh, from the line of Esau a chief minister of Judea who appointed his son as king of Judea. And you may recognize his son. His name was Herod the Great. And so this is the jealous of Jesus, hungry for power, king of Judea, that uh, is installed as the New Testament begins. So the priesthood becomes politically based. New places of worship uh, called synagogues that you may recognize from your study of the New Testament start sprouting up all over the country. Religious and civil matters were governed by an agency called the Sanhedrin. You may recognize that. And then two major legal groups, religious leader, legal groups, were developed that you may recognize. Uh, two groups were the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. The, I'm sorry, not the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So the Sadducees were elitists. They had more seats on the Sanhedrin. Their focus of power was the temple. And the Pharisees, they were more blue-collar people. They controlled the synagogues, and they started out as theological good guys. And so they were really trying to conserve the religion for the Jewish people, but they became more passionate about rules than they did about caring for people. And so all of that is the backdrop. So this tension, this yearning for freedom, for relief, and then setting the stage for some of the Jewish law was conserved, but then it's really obvious that we're getting away from the heart of God in the Jewish religion. So the stage could not have been better set for a Savior who would come and rescue, deliver, and bring freedom to the nation of Israel and ultimately to us, ultimately to the world. So we get to Luke 2, 25 through 38. And of this block of 14 verses, the first one that we just read describes Simeon as someone waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for Israel to be consoled. This phrase, the consolation of Israel, was used to refer to the coming Messiah. And then our last verse, in verse 38, that describes the people who were watching Anna as she was celebrating the Messiah in their presence as those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, would remove sorrow he would bring comfort, he would release from bondage, and the penalty of sin. So the story of Simeon Anna, even though it's at the end, is really set in the stage for the beginning. It's a story of waiting their entire lives for something that had not come for 400 years. What we see in these few verses is them receiving the answer that they had been waiting for. But what we don't see is really what happened 99% of their lives, which was waiting year after year and not receiving. So just to bring it uh, to a personal moment with my family. So my family has been praying almost every night for years, uh, over a decade, really for 13 years, for God to heal my first cousin who has suffered from the effects of a stroke 13 years ago. 
So my first cousin, life of the party, scratch golfer, great guy. When he was 38 years old, he had a stroke, and he's been on the couch ever since. And so every single night, my family prays for Cousin Walter to be healed. And then one night last night, I'm sorry, one night last week, Jordy, my youngest, asked me this. Dad, we've been praying every night for Cousin Walter. Why hasn't God healed him? And so, as I think about this, and I really don't, did not at that moment have a great answer for her, how that we have been praying every night and why has not God healed him. I want to ask you the question, have you ever experienced something like that in your life? Are you going through something like that in your life? For instance, has there been a period in your life where you have sought healing from God and you didn't get it? Has there been a period in your life where you sought answers or directions from God and you only heard silence? Has there been a time in your life where you sought provision or resources and you ended up coming up short? Has there been a time in your life where you needed peace but yet you remained unsettled? Has there been a time in your life where you sought comfort and joy only to become more dissatisfied? Has there been a time in your life where you just needed God's presence and so far have only experienced distance? So my question is, if you can identify with any of that, and if you say, well, I don't think I can, you probably will at least one day. My question for us this morning, how can we make it through when it seems that God is silent? How can we make it through when it seems that God is absent? My answer to Jordy to that question, why hasn't God, we've been praying for him every day, why hasn't he healed Cousin Walter? My answer was, I really don't know. And I, I really don't know why God has not given us uh, the answer that we were praying for, and I don't know really why you may not have received the answer that you have been hoping for or praying for or waiting for. But there are a few things I do know, and that's what I want to encourage us with this morning. I do know this. The first thing that we need to at least mention is it's important to recognize that the reason that we have any grief in the first place, the reason why we have any kind or feel any kind of bondage in our lives, the reason why we have any needs that are unmet, the reason why we have any desires that are unfulfilled, the reason why we experience any pain, dissatisfaction, loneliness, or there's any place in our life that is need of healing is because Genesis 1 through 3 tells us there was a time that we had, that Adam and Eve had, where every need was met and every desire was satisfied, and we chose to walk away. There was a place in the Garden of Eden where we had everything that we could possibly want, and we just turned our backs on it. And now we, all of us, have individually walked away from God's provision, from his place of satisfaction and comfort and joy. We have all turned our backs on him. But one thing, I do know that, but there's another thing I do know is that God has never walked away. 
So has it ever seemed like God has disappeared in your own life? Maybe not for the last 400 years, but maybe for the last 40, or maybe for the last four years, or even the last four months. Maybe for a long period or a short period, you have wondered if God was really there. I wonder about Simeon and Anna. They had been waiting for the Messiah for their entire lives. I wonder if they had doubted if he would ever come in their lifetime, if he would ever come at all. I assume the doubts were there, but it's very clear that they were both faithful and never gave in to despair. So the title in your bulletin is How to Make It Through 400 Years of Silence. And I believe this passage gives us three ways to keep trusting when it seems that God is silent and even absent. Now, of course, we... (laughs) are not living 400 years. Nobody in here is 400 years old or will they live that long. But I feel like sometimes the silence that maybe we experience in our lives or the distance sometimes that we experience may carry the weight of 400 years. And so I think this passage applies to us today, wealth to us today. So how do we make it through 400 years of silence? The first encouragement that we get from this passage is to hang on to what has been revealed. Hang on to what has been revealed. In verse 26, in the portion of Scripture that's referring to Simeon, it says that he had been reve- it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So even though, and I think this is important for us to note, so even though there was 400 years of silence, that God had given Simeon a word. And so what Simeon did was he hung on to what was revealed. So the first place we should go when it seems like God is silent is that we should go to his word. It is God's word that reveals these four very important things about him. It reveals who is God, what has God done, what is God doing, and what will God do. Who is God, what has God done, what is God doing, and what will God do? You can pick any passage in the Bible, and I believe that you'll find an answer to at least one of those questions. So you say, well, it seems like God is distant. It seems like he's silent. He's not, because we can go in his word, and we can hear from him directly. In some verses, I think you can find all four. So you take Romans 8.32, for example. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare, speaking about God, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? So he, God, who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him give us all good things? So it seems like God is distant. It seems like he's not answering my prayers. Does God really care? Is he really concerned? Is he going to take care of my needs? Is he going to meet my desires? You look at this passage and you ask these questions. Well, what does this passage say about who is God? Well, God is a gracious God who does not spare. And if that's all I got from this passage, I feel like that would be good enough. God is not silent. He's not absent. I just need to tell myself to believe the word that has been revealed to me, that he is a gracious God who does not spare. But I can keep asking the rest of the questions. What has God done? Well, he gave Jesus up for me. What is God doing? He has given me all things. In fact, the evidence that he has given me all things, the logic of the verse is, 
that if he gave his only son, then he's going to give me all things. And so that's what God is doing. What will God do? And really, for this particular verse, I've got the same answer. He will give me all things. And I can tell this because I actually broke away from the passage and I looked at the context and I found out the verses previous to this particular verse, he's actually talking about heaven. So that's what God's going to give me eventually. And the verses after this, God is actually talking about God's, Paul's actually writing about God's love to me at all times. So what is God doing? He's giving me all good things. What will God do? He's going to give me all good things. God has revealed, and this is just one example of how we say, well, Simeon got a direct word from the Lord, and that's what brought him through. And I think that's important for us to know, is that even during 400 years of silence, God was still moving, he was still active, he was still speaking, and he was still in relationship with individuals. And that's the same thing with us. In fact, the Holy Spirit was who communicated to Simeon. Now we have the Holy Spirit, those that have trusted in Christ, living in us. And so he communicates through us, and he primarily communicates through us in his word. Even during these 400 years, God was not silent then, and he's not silent now. And that's why we get up here. That's why Jacob and I put together that video, because we keep pounding every day, every time we get a chance to spend time every day in God's Word. Because the primary way we're going to realize that God is not silent and that God is not absent is to hear from Him through His living and active Word. So how do you make it through 400 years of silence? You hang on to what has been revealed. And the second way in which you endure, make it through 400 years of silence, is to never stop praying. Never stop praying. So Simeon was able to keep trusting until Jesus showed up by hanging on to God's word. And we find Anna's secret in verse 37. So how did she make it through? Well, her life, who she was, was someone that did not depart, this is in verse 7, 37, from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Jesus, later on in his ministry, would use an example in Luke chapter 18 of another widow who would always show up and never stop asking for justice against her adversary. And so Jesus says, this is, I'm telling you this parable so that you will pray and never, ever give up. Pastor Tony Evans once said, and I love this quote, the bottom line is pray. Pastor Evans says, if you're tired, sick, emotionally overwhelmed, pray. If you're on cloud nine and life seems perfect, pray. If you lack direction, pray. If you doubt that prayer makes any difference, pray. If the circumstances of your life are out of your control, pray. And if the circumstances of your life seem well within your control, what do you think you should do? Pray. pray. He says pray even harder. <laughs> Whatever you do, pray. So as I've thought about how hanging on to what God has revealed and to praying every day and not giving up, I thought about this as this kind of analogy. I believe that we have something that helps us get through 400 years of silence or whenever God seems distant or whenever he seems absent or when he's not giving us what we feel like we need. There is a fuel and there is a flame to how to persevere when God seems silent. The fuel is that which has been revealed in God's word. That which God has revealed about, again, who he is, 
what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. That's the fuel that we need to persevere. The flame is prayer. The flame is prayer that God uses to carry out his promises. It's like, well, if God already knows, why pray? If God's already going to do what he's going to do, why pray? Why does he? Because God has commanded us to pray, because God takes joy in using our prayers to carry out his will. Because he takes joy in us having joy of seeing his will being carried out through us, particularly our prayers. We also see in this passage, verse 37, that she's worshiping with fasting and prayer. So she's fasting as well. And so why fast? What is fasting? So fasting, which is typically going without food for a period of time, sometimes short, sometimes long. And the reason why fasting is so important is it helps you pray even more because it helps you feel your need of God. I remember one time I was fasting and uh, I had fasted. I said, I'm going to fast for two days. And so I got into the second day and I told the Lord, I promised him, I said, if you can get me through this thing alive, uh, I promise you that I will always pray and never give up. <laughs> so, but that's, it helps you feel your need of him. And so Fasting is like adding oxygen to the flame. So the fuel is God's word, the flame is prayer, and fasting is adding uh, oxygen to the flame. So you may have heard the saying, and I thought about this when Jordy asked me the question about why hasn't God answered our prayer. And So you may have heard this saying before. Uh, sometimes it's attributed to Albert Einstein. I don't think that's true. I think people attribute it to him just to make it sound intelligent. Uh, but this is... Uh, phrase you may have heard, the definition of insanity. Have y'all heard this before? What the definition of insanity is? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that may be true in most cases. So it's not working. Don't keep trying the same thing, right? But that's not the case when it comes to prayer. Because I have found over and over again that God answers prayer, even instantly. Even last night, I saw God answer within a matter of seconds a prayer that I prayed. It was clear that it was from God. And I have seen this over and over and over in my life that God answers prayers. However, when you pray about everything, there will be some things that God says no to. Or there will be some things that God says wait because we're not going to get it right every time, right? And be, be praying the things that are best for us and best for the people around us and best for God's overall plan. But until you get a no, you keep praying. Others may see it as insanity, but really it's just a display of your faith in God who does answer prayers. And if you feel that God is silent, if you feel that God is absent, then prayer will change that as well. James 4, 8 promises this. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So prayer actually becomes the answer for experiencing God when he seems like he's not there. The third way to persevere uh, when God seems silent, and this is our last one, is to know that Christmas is coming. To know that Christmas is coming. There is something about Christmas that we all love waiting for. The wait, at least for me in my experience, is almost half the fun. The anticipation of Christmas is almost just as joyful as Christmas Day itself. There were a lot of people for 
a long time waiting for the first Christmas. It, it wasn't just Simeon, and it wasn't just Anna. Still referring to Anna at the end of the passage, verse 38 says this, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So I see Christmas in more than one place in Luke chapter 2, especially after looking at this passage this week. Yes, Christmas happened uh, during the uh, first 14 or so verses uh, when Jesus was actually born. But for Anna, Christmas actually happened that day in the temple because that's when Christmas came to her. That was her Christmas morning experience. And then within verse 38, she immediately turns to those who were there with her, and for them, they experienced Christmas as well. So you got Christmas when Jesus was born, Christmas when Simeon and Anna experienced it, and then you got Christmas for those that they told about Jesus' arrival to as well. And so my question that I want to end on this morning is, what exactly is Christmas? So what is Christmas? And I think it could be one of three things. Christmas could be the day that Jesus showed up. In fact, it is the day that Jesus showed up, right? What day is that? Some research points uh, toward Jesus not being born in December. Hopefully that wasn't uh, just the idea of that. It's not too much of a discouragement to you. Some, there's some research out there that says it probably didn't happen in December, uh, but rather sometime between late spring and early fall when the weather's a little warmer because that's when shepherds would most likely be in their fields keeping watch of their flock by night. Over Thanksgiving last week, my dad actually made this announcement, I think at the Thanksgiving table. He said, I just want you guys to know that I believe that Christmas happened on April the 15th. And I'm like, wow, I was impressed. Just the fact that he said it with so much confidence. And I'm sitting there thinking, how did he come up with that date? Apparently my dad's been doing some research on when Christmas actually happened. And I said, how'd you come up with that date, dad? And he said, well, it says at the beginning of Luke chapter 1 that Caesar called for a taxation and all the world went to be taxed, so it must be April the 15th. And I said, okay, Dad. <laughs> uh, but regardless of, of, you know, maybe we might spend our entire lives and we may not know the exact day. But whatever day that was, that was Christmas Day, right? It's the day that Jesus showed up. But Christmas also is the day that we celebrate when Jesus showed up. So at some hot point, if it wasn't on December the 25th, somewhere down the line in the, maybe the first couple of hundred years after Christ, the world started celebrating Christmas on December the 25th. In the 200s, a church historian believed that Mary was told by the angel that she would become pregnant on March the 25th, which was actually the same day that he thought the world was created many, many years ago that he says that somehow he figured out that the world was created on March the 25th, and it just seemed right that that's when Jesus was told, when Mary was told by the angel that she was pregnant. And so he did the math. He counted nine months after March the 25th, and what do you get? December the 25th. The church in Rome began formally celebrating Christmas in 336 A.D. on December the 25th. Some believe that the Emperor Constantine that he did this to weaken uh, pagan celebrations that were happening during that time, and that could be the case. I don't know. But regardless of when it started and how it got there, I actually prefer, and I don't know about you, Christmas being on December the 25th. I wouldn't want to ha have it any other way. 
And the reason is, and I know that I'm speaking from a narrow-minded northern hemisphere perspective, but I can't imagine winter without Christmas. I mean, winter is just simply too dark and it's too cold without Christmas. So I like December the 25th. And another reason why I like it is because December the 25th is just a few days after the winter solstice. And many of you are familiar with this. That December the 21st, I think it is, is the shortest day of the year. And just after that, the days start getting longer. And so I think Jesus's and God's sovereignty that Christmas is now celebrated at a time of the year when light breaks through into our world. And so just symbolic of lighting, the light of Christmas and Jesus breaking through. So when is Christmas Day? Well, it's the time that Jesus showed up, or it's when we celebrate Jesus showed up. But also, number three, is it's any day that Jesus shows up. Any day that Jesus shows up is Christmas morning. Christmas had happened in verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And then Christmas happened again in verse 27 when Simeon heard. And Christmas happened again in verse 38 when Anna heard. And then Christmas happened again in verse 38 toward the end of that verse when everybody around her heard. Jesus was already there. Christmas had arrived. But for those listening, Jesus showed up on the day that they heard about Jesus. So, just in closing, Christmas is less than 30 days from here. But in a very real sense, Christmas does happen anytime Jesus shows up. So last Thursday, you may have sat around the table with your family and friends, and uh, you may have been discussing different things that you're thankful for. Maybe you were around the table and said, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? Regarding what God has done or maybe what God is doing. But we should also be thankful for what God is going to do. Not just what he's done, what he's doing, but what he's going to do. With a thankful spirit, we should wait in anticipation for the ways in which Jesus will show up. We should view Christmas always as just around the corner. Nevertheless, it's not just about the day in which he's going to show up, but if we remember Jesus' last words to us, which we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus ends, his last words to us on earth is, Behold, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So in reality, God is never silent and God is never absent because he is always showing up in my life and in your life as well. And therefore, every day can be Christmas Day. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, your revealed word that you have given to us so that we can be 100% confident that even though, even during times where it seems that you are absent and it seems that you are silent, that it's really clear that you are not. It's really clear from James 4.8 that when we draw near to you, that you draw near to us. And I pray that just during this season, where it is a season of hope and it is a season of joy, for many of us, maybe because of experiences that we haven't, have had in the past, maybe because of lost loved ones, loved, loved ones that we've experienced recently, that Christmas can be a time of despair, and it can be a time of um, heartache and anxiety and fear. And so, Lord, I pray that even as we look, that there was a period of time that we now call the 400 years of silence, and we can see that even during that time that you were active and you were working and you were setting the stage for Christmas Day. 
I pray, Lord, that in our lives, we will always see you setting the stage for a Christmas day that's just around the corner. And that we will always see you as living and active and working in each one of our lives and readily available to show up and rescue and deliver. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.